I want to love you. I just don't know how. I need to know how. Because when our parents are gone, I'll be the only person who can take care of you. This is Mouthful, and I'm Yvonne Laddie. Every week, I will be having a complicated conversation with a young person about the things that matter to them, things they have written about and shared on stages across the city. And then we will go out into the community and talk to teens, adults, experts, anyone who can broaden the conversation. Today's episode is about autism. What is autism? Why don't we ask a doctor? Autism is a disorder that consists of deficits in social communication, so both the way that children and adults use language as well as use gestures, body language to communicate, and the way they interact in a social way with the people in the world around them. It also consists of differences in behaviors, and a lot of those behaviors are what we call restricted or repetitive in a lot of ways. So this may be differences in how they sense the world around them, or differences in some of their motor movements or in their speech patterns. And those two components together comprise autism spectrum disorder. That's Dr. Kate Wallace. She's our guest on this episode, and we'll get back to her in a bit. So, autism is short for autism spectrum disorder, which means that it's different for every affected person. One in 68 children, mostly boys, are affected. If you think about it, that's two kids in an average kindergarten grade, and the rate of diagnosis is growing. Every affected person is different, which means that every experience with autism is different. Lisa Gardner's brother, is autistic. Yeah, uh, so my older brother, he's four years older than me, is on the autistic spectrum. That's Lisa. For Lisa, growing up with her brother was a challenge. Her perspective on autism is one you don't hear or read much about in pamphlets or autism education websites. Her view is a raw, gut-wrenching experience of growing up with a severely autistic big brother. Uh, Growing up, I definitely dealt with a lot of taking more responsibility in my family and definitely having a different experience with my siblings than some of my peers did. And I wrote the monologue at a time when my brother was about to leave our, our home to go to a school for people on the spectrum. And so he was going to be leaving basically indefinitely. And so it was kind of about saying goodbye and what that meant to me at that time. Lisa wrote Autism Speaks in 2013 while she was a student at Lower Marion High School. I should mention that the monologue and this episode are not affiliated with the advocacy group of the same name. Let's listen to the monologue performed by Dana Kreitz. I'm happy to see you go. I'm happy to see you go. You are leaving today and I don't know what to feel or how to say it to you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you are autistic, and I'm sorry that your life will never be as good as mine, but you can't take mine away from me. You can't take my life away from me. You can't complain when my friends come over that they're too loud but wake me up all night. You have to learn they're not your parents. They're our parents. You're an adult. Stop acting like a child. You have to learn that the world 
doesn't revolve around you because not everyone's like mom and dad and me. People will try and take advantage of you. And I don't want that for you. I just want you to be a normal big brother to care for me and protect me. I want my house to be full of laughter instead of yelling. I want to be happy. I don't want you to hold me back. I don't want to have to hide my feelings. I don't want to love you when I don't like you, but it's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be the supportive sister that holds the family together when really all I want to do is tear it apart. I'm selfish. I already knew that. You already knew that. And I guess this makes me a horrible person. <laughs> someone I don't want to be. I just want someone to tell me it's all right. I want you to say it's okay that I feel this way, but you can't tell me. You can't help me. Do you love me? Are you capable of love? How can I love you when I can't know if you love me? And how do you expect me to understand you when you can't explain your feelings? I want to love you. I just don't know how. I need to know how. Because when our parents are gone, I'll be the only person who can take care of you. Can I get a thank you? <laughs> Some kind of acknowledgement that you understand what we've sacrificed for you? I guess that's not possible. Still, you're a part of me and I'm a part of you. You've made me who I am. You've watched me grow. Can't I do the same for you? And maybe one day I'll be able to stop pretending. I will love you. Producer Mitchell Bloom and I spoke with Lisa via Skype. She's currently a student at Penn State studying mechanical engineering. Growing up, Lisa struggled with the challenge of dealing with a sibling who she could not communicate with. Definitely, we didn't really understand each other well. It's a different experience for everyone because a spectrum is so broad. So I don't want to generalize my experiences for everybody, but... It was definitely difficult on my parents, which strengthened our, my relationship with them a lot and was an interesting thing to kind of, as I got older, talk to them and realize that they didn't sign up for this either. And they didn't really know what they were. No parent knows what they're doing when they have a kid, but they really didn't know what they were doing. Since then, there have been a lot more innovations and um, ideas and therapies and things like that that have come out. There's been more government support. And so they were really kind of pioneers in raising a child with special needs. And yeah, so it was an interesting experience to be a part of, but a very challenging one. And I think you can see that in the monologue. And despite their separation in time, Lisa still struggles with their relationship. Currently, I don't really have much of a relationship with him because he doesn't, I don't live at home and he doesn't live at home either. So I only really see him on family holidays. And uh, it's been a little bit of a relief in some ways to be able to focus on myself. And, and I'm in school. I'm a very ambitious person. So I'm trying to uh, get a lot of cool opportunities and things. But I always kind of know that he's, he's there. And at some point, I think I mentioned this in the monologue, I'm going to be the only one left to take care of him. So there's this very, like, I don't really see him right now in my present, but I know that he's there, especially for the future.
Lisa's brother is currently doing well at his school. So he's currently at the same school, but he is living with a roommate in an apartment, and somebody comes from that school to check up on him every day um, and make sure that he's taking his medicines, that he gets to work. Um, he's working as a janitor at night, and he has a job coach who goes with him to help him do the job. And he also volunteers at a hospital. And Lisa's trying to work on their relationship, even though she doesn't see him much. Every time I try to see him, I try and get a little bit better at, at handling it because I just got to a point where it was just really hard to even like talk to him. And so I just wouldn't. <laughs> and that's kind of why I wanted to write a monologue was because there was so much I wasn't saying because I knew he either wouldn't understand it or like, well, first off, he definitely wouldn't understand it. But it was stuff that I didn't want my parents to hear or I was kind of um, like ashamed to admit. And I still have a lot of unresolved feelings. But every time that I see him, now that I know that I see him for shorter periods of time, I try uh, every time to be a little bit more accepting, to be a little bit better in my interactions with him. I'm not always better at it, <laughs> but I try. When Lisa's parents saw her monologue performed, they were moved. Dad cried. <laughs> I, I think that they were really supportive of it. My parents have both always demanded of me that I try and be more accepting because I should be <laughs> and everyone should be. Um, but you can't always do what you're supposed to do, I guess, um, when it comes to feelings. And Lisa never wanted to say those words, but she needed to. I mean, it was good to hear it because I never wanted to say the words, but having someone else say them was just kind of what I needed. It's like a therapy session every time I went <laughs> um, to work on it. But uh, it was really, I, I hadn't really thought about it too much because I try to shut down thoughts like that. But to really just like own up to it, this is how I feel. And I'm trying to get better and I'm trying to change, I think did help me get some closure in that part of my life. Still, Lisa's relationship with her brother has shaped who she is. She's studying mechanical engineering because she's interested in medical technologies and using it to help people like her brother. I'm really interested in social good. And I think a lot of people go and they say, I'm going to mechanical engineering because I want to build a plane. <laughs> and I personally have no desire to build a plane. <laughs> I'm really interested in technologies that help people. I'm sure some of that is influenced by the experience I had growing up with my brother. How do we, with all these new technologies, build things that people can intuitively use? Our next stop was a conversation with Dr. Kate Wallace, a pediatrician who specializes in autism. So in its extreme state, what does autism look like? So every we say in the autism community that if you meet one child with autism, you've met one child with autism because given that it is a spectrum, there's a wide variety of severities that we that we can observe in that individual's experience. This can be everything from really um, being nonverbal and not being able to talk, being very socially isolated, to just having some differences in how they perceive the world, what we would call some quirks potentially. What does having a child on the spectrum do to a family? So we love to talk about 
the strengths of different children. Each, uh, every child that I see with autism brings special strengths and qualities and love and affection to their families. Um, I think there's a misperception out there that children with autism don't learn to love, don't, don't have affection, don't show emotion, and that's really false. But there are challenges and struggles, and I think that this monologue really speaks to not only what having a child with autism means to parents, but what it means to siblings. And I think that's a really important perspective for me as a clinician to, to take into account whenever I interact with these families. In the monologue, the, it's basically written by a sister, a sister of someone who has autism, and she clearly is struggling a lot. Is that something that you see? Again, because there's a spectrum and a variety of severities, this the individual she's describing sounds like he has a lot more difficulties with engagement, and that that really is something that we see in some in some of the populations. And I'm sure she often has ambivalent feelings about this child. There, are, it's it's important to recall that every child has strengths and trying to see those, but it can be really challenging because. There are differences with how these uh, relationships form and how how individuals with autism interact with their family members and and those around them. And that can really, really be challenging for, for family members. Do you have any advice for siblings who might feel that way? Because it does seem like if you have a child who's on the spectrum, that it is going to take a lot of energy from the parents in trying to figure out what's the best course of action to give that child a happy life. But the sibling can kind of fall to the wayside. Do you have any advice for for these kids? It can be really hard, and siblings can often feel a real sense from a young age of responsibility for even protecting the child who has an autism spectrum disorder. I think it's really important, like I, I had mentioned, to recall the strengths of every child and to really try to see them for, for what they can contribute and to build on those relationships. So often, children with autism may have a particular interest, and trying to share in that interest as opposed to seeing that as just a negative, but it really is a time-consuming process to really, to really, bo- to find those areas of bonding. And if you have a child that has autism, what what can be done to make them have a, a good life? So we talk about early intervention and early therapy. So the earlier that we identify the condition, the earlier that we intervene and provide therapy to help them to work on some of the foundational skills that are more challenging, the better the outcome. So working on things that may be difficult for each individual child, such as engaging in eye contact. And eye contact is something that's really foundational and allows them to learn from their environment. Um, Working on their engagement with others so that they can really learn from the teachers and the individuals around them. But we know that kids can have really good outcomes and we expect all children that we make a diagnosis of autism in to make progress over time. Increased awareness around autism and and the prevalence of of a community. Can you talk a little bit about that, of like how um, autism awareness has increased over the last couple years? Is is that the case or is that... And now I think there's a lot more understanding for some of the differences that the and difficulties that these children experience. We're still not there all the way. There's still a lot of judgment of families. But I think that this has really improved in the past 15 years as I've observed it. And I think this has really been crucial to creating that sense of community, understanding, 
In addition, what's gone along with that is an increase in funding to try to understand the condition, to try to figure out treatments for the condition. And so research has really focused on all of those things, and I think that results from this increased understanding. It goes hand in hand. Do you ever suggest that the family seek therapy? Yeah, uh, we actually know, and we know a lot more about um, parents and in particular mothers, that the rate of clinical depression is actually a lot higher in this population, some pre-existing before the child was born with autism, but also as a result of receiving that diagnosis and, and working with a child who really has some difficulties. I don't think we know as much about that that diagnosis of depression in siblings, but I can imagine and I, I recognize the responsibility and the toll that can have on the entire family unit. I think families that are struggling definitely should seek support. There are also support groups for families and for siblings. We really um, encourage family members to take their kids to sibling support groups and, and real clinical therapy when needed. I think that this monologue really brings to mind that level of responsibility that families may not even recognize that their young children are perceiving from a young age, but feeling that they need to both protect their sibling, who they may see in the, on the school bus being bullied, or or see them interacting and recognize that they can be a protector for them. And then ultimately, potentially from a young age, recognizing that they'll go on to have more um, financial and personal responsibility for them as as the as they age and as they grow up and become adults. Um, and that can be really, really challenging. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that they're still a family and that they can take a break from that and try to step away and spend quality time with other siblings. And we really remind families of that. So for people who don't often get an opportunity to engage with someone with autism, what advice do you have for them? Remembering that they're people, the ability to form relationships, sometimes it's finding one of those particular interests that they have and connecting over that. They interact with the world a little bit differently, but that doesn't mean they're not interested in other people, and that's really the basis of it. I mean, in some way, she has no idea the effect she's had on her brother, and it could be profound. Absolutely, and should be celebrated. It's not always easy to see that. And there are, I'm sure, harder days and less difficult days. Enjoying those moments of connection when they exist and celebrating them is, is, a, great, is a great thing. And that's our show. Thanks to Lisa Gardner for sharing her honest and brave monologue and Dr. Kate Wallace for the conversation. Autism Speaks was performed by Dana Kreitz. So, folks, this is the 10th and final episode of our first season. Yay! All 10 episodes are available online, so if you missed one, go back and listen. Our website, www.mouthfulpodcastphilly.com, is packed with images, media, and episode extras. We'll be back in July for our live show as part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. Save the date for July 23rd and visit www.phillypodfest.com for more information about the festival. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. See you next time. Today's episode of Mouthful is brought to you by AT&T. I bet some of you are listening to this podcast on your AT&T powered smartphone right now. That's how I listen. 
When I think of AT&T, I think of them as a phone company, but they are so much more. They deliver mobile services, next-gen TV through direct TV, mobile internet, services for businesses of all sizes, and much more, including support for STEM and community organizations. This summer, AT&T is sponsoring Philadelphia Young Playwrights' week-long theater and technology camp. Running from July 10th through 14th, students will go on field trips, learn from guest artists, and create their own piece of 21st century theater. And all because of AT&T's generous support. For more information about the camp, visit www.phillyyoungplaywrights.org classes. That's www.phillyyoungplaywrights.org classes. Scholarships are available. Mouthful is produced by Lisa Nelson-Haynes and Mitchell Bloom of Philadelphia Young Playwrights. PYP is an arts education nonprofit that taps the potential of young people and inspires learning through playwriting. And by NYU journalism professor Yvonne Laddie, who also edits Mouthful. Original music for Mouthful was created by Ill Dudes. To join the Ill movement, head over to illdudes.com. That's I-L-L-D-O-O-T-S dot com. For episode extras and more information, visit mouthfulpodcastphilly.com. That's mouthfulpodcastphilly.com. And be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Mouthful Philly. Subscribe and review us on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud to be sure you'll never miss a conversation. Mouthful is a production of Philadelphia Young Playwrights.